And we have uh, the Reverend Dr. John Senyanyi with us today. He is the president of Uganda Christian University, uh, which is the largest Christian university in Africa. And so uh, what a treat to have him here. Um, one of the beautiful things about uh, being a part of the Anglican Communion, it's a global communion. And so somebody called me from our diocese and, uh, and sent a message and saying, hey, we have this Ugandan scholar and he's a great preacher. And, and uh, um, would anybody uh, have some ministry they'd like to do him to do while he's in this area? And I said, ooh, will he preach at our church? <laughs> and uh, I'm so thankful that he said yes. So. Uh, Dr. John, if you come up here, I'd love to say a word of prayer for you, and uh, we, we look forward to hearing the word of God through you this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for um, this, your servant, who has been serving your church, who has been serving those preparing for ministry, been serving those who need education for so long. And that you have been pouring out your Holy Spirit and bearing fruit that would last. Lord, we thank you for the East African revival and how you're using that to help revive your church around the world. Lord, we pray that you would bring some of that revival amongst us today. Lord, we pray not only that you would speak through your servant, but you would speak to your servant, uh, Dr. John. And Lord, we pray that you would fill his cup. Lord, we pray that you would encourage him to be an encouragement to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Now, in Uganda, when we greet each other, we use the words we say, praise the Lord, and you respond by saying amen. So I'm going to do exactly that. Praise the Lord. Amen. amen. Well, thank you very much, uh, Reverend Bedo Godot. I think you know, that was also a difficult one for you. <laughs> so I'm sure you struggled with mine enough. But uh, it's such a joy for us to be here together with uh, my wife. And let me just say a few words before I go into the message uh, that you heard. We come from Uganda Christian University. That university has been in existence for the last 22 years and uh, has grown tremendously, for which we are thankful to God. We offer many programs. We actually receive American students who spend a semester there. Um, you know, and even right now we do have 26 students from the United States who are with us and uh, spending that semester with Uganda Christian University. Uh, let me also recognize the presence here of uh, Mr. Mark Bartels. Uh, if you would kindly stand up. Uh, so you can be seen. Uh, Mark spent 10 years with us. In fact, he was the first executive director of that particular program that looks after American students and was handed over to others. But now he's the executive director of Uganda Partners, our charity organization here in the United States. And so we are, he's the one actually taking us around everywhere. We've been visiting virtually every year. We do this every year and move to different places. But thank you for giving us better weather than we lived with in Chicago many years ago. Uh, because I, I did study at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, of course, we came with uh, Ruth, uh, my wife of almost 35 years, will be making 35 in April. Uh, I will say that she shows more on me 
here. I'm sure about that. Uh, she's still a young woman, uh, but uh, she's a counseling psychologist and did her PhD actually at Regent University after doing a master's in Chicago. And uh, she now works with the Bank of Uganda, which is the central bank. I think you would call it here Federal Reserve or something like that. That's what she works with. And her responsibility there is to look after the welfare of staff and their families. And so that's how we traveled. God has blessed us with four children. Uh, all of them are out of the house. As a matter of fact, earlier this past week, our youngest made 24. Uh, so, but he lives in Berlin, Germany, where he works. Uh, we have another son who lives in Switzerland uh, with, his, with his wife and their child. Uh, but in Uganda, we do have uh, two who, one, uh, the, the firstborn uh, is a girl. She studied at Uganda Christian University herself. But now she decided to resign her work. She's a public relations specialist, and she's looking after our three grandchildren. Notice I'm not saying our, her, her three children. I'm saying our three grandchildren. <laughs> That's very important. Uh, and uh, our third born, the one in Switzerland is actually the second born, and our third born is a computer scientist and is working back in Uganda after doing his master's in Germany. So we are really very delighted to be here. And I want to bring greetings from Uganda Christian University as we've been moving around. Uh, we have, this, this time around, I think we've had much better weather than usual. Uh, quite often we have uh, disruptions as a result of weather. Now, I want to invite you at a time to come and visit us. I, not, I realize we just found out someone here, Cassidy, who uh, visited Uganda, but she has not visited the university, and that's the case we hold against her. <laughs> so she will have to come back and visit the university. She told me she's coming in March, and we look forward to seeing you on the other side of our country. And thank you once again for the wonderful welcome. I want to share with you, coming out of the gospel, reading from Matthew chapter 5, which was read uh, for us so well. It's a very common passage, and I know that many of us actually have heard sermons on it. But I'm going to take it slightly differently. I want particularly to focus on our identity as Christians. That's what I want to focus on. And I want us to think together what that actually means for us, that we do hold that particular identity. So that's what I'm going to be dealing with. Now, Jesus' words have as much to do with our identity in him as with the implications of that identity. And, of course, the verifiable evidence that comes as a result. So we are going to be focusing on that. So let, just keep in mind that what you are, what your identity is, who you are, actually speaks to how you live, and creates expectations amongst those that watch you. And that's essentially what Jesus is talking about. So we'll be focusing a lot about that. I mean, your identity determines your social impact, doesn't it? It really does. The Lord talks about how the identity of a Christian is world news. You know, when he talks about salt and light, 
and how those affect the people around you. To the point that he says in verse 16, that as a result people are able to give glory to your father, he's actually saying that the way who we are affects how we live until eventually the world is able to recognize that this is who we are. In recent years, the media has been focused on a number of things. At least from our vantage point in Uganda, we were watching the stories about uh, Prince Harry. <laughs> now, notice he's called Prince. Unlike me, who is a commoner. <laughs> and so everything that comes out of a prince becomes news. Who he is speaks volumes. Same thing with the Trump. You know, we came in here when you are going through this uh, trial in the Senate, the impeachment trial. And why did it become news to us in Uganda? Doesn't concern us. That's your business. <laughs> Nevertheless, the very fact that Trump is president of the United States, that is his identity at this point, it makes news. You get it? Mm -hmm. yeah. It makes news, whether we like it or not. That's what Jesus is telling us. Conversion has, has something to do with how other people will see us. I don't know how many of you have ever read or at least seen the book Christian Counterculture by the late John Stott. Powerful book. And if you've never seen it, I encourage you to look at it. It's a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to read for you what he says. Because he calls it Christian counterculture purposefully. Knowing that what Jesus actually was teaching had something to do with the life of a Christian as a Christian, whose identity is Christian, out in the world. And this is what he says. We should not ask what is wrong with the world, for that diagnosis has already been given. Rather, we should ask, what has happened to salt and light? What has happened to the Christian? Is the Christian still living the identity of being a Christian? We should be asking, where is the salt? Where is the light? That's what John Stott said. Now, I'm going to be dwelling on just two things very importantly here. Two areas. Vital elements of salt and light. And I'm not going to go through the normal things that are normally said, but I just want you to reflect on this. The first thing I want to talk about is the power of Christian identity. The power of Christian identity. That cannot be ignored. When we live our faith and we live it, people will notice wherever we are. Many years ago, I landed in Australia, Melbourne, Australia, and I was going there to study to do my postgraduate studies. I'm a, math, a mathematical statistician in my training. <coughs> and so I do remember I arrived on a Saturday. The following Monday morning, I went for breakfast, and then I saw another student here. He happened to be in Nigeria. And eventually we spent five wonderful years together with this gentleman. I looked at him. You were sitting there, saying nothing, but my heart, I was saying to myself, this man looks like he loves Jesus. <laughs> Just look at that. I invited him to come to my room. 
where I was staying in that particular little hotel where I had been put. And the moment he entered, he saw a Bible that was really falling apart. <laughs> because it had been read and read. It had not been misused, it had been read. <laughs> and you know the statement that says that the, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to a person who does a quiz. Yeah. The Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And so he came into my room and he saw the Bible that I had and he looked at me and he said, you're a Christian? And I said, yes I am. And then he said, I sensed that you're a Christian. When we met down there. Now that doesn't happen all the time. Nevertheless, the point that we are talking about here is that the Christian identity cannot be hidden. That's why Jesus says, and you heard what Ruth was saying, you don't put anything on it to cover it. And Jesus asks the question, when salt loses its saltness, how can, it, how can it be made salt again? Now listen to the way Jesus puts it. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Why doesn't he say, you will become? Right? He doesn't say you will become. He doesn't say you may be. This is a statement of fact that whoever is in Christ is salt, is light. That's how it is. In fact, it becomes a real contradiction when people look at our lives and they are unable to notice our Christian faith. You should be shining out there. It should be visible. You should be something that people are able to see and they are able to say, yes, that's a Christian. I remember when I came to Christ in 1976 as a university student. I met some of my colleagues, the Ugandans. I was at the University of Nairobi in neighboring Kenya. And when I met them, they understood. They had really heard, of course, they had heard it in rumors, but they understood exactly what to expect of me now that I had made a decision for Christ. That doesn't mean I haven't failed. I've failed many times. But I thank God that he lifts us up in those moments when we fail. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you will become. Not you may be. It's not a part-time job. It is your identity. And we need to take hold of that and understand that who I am matters immensely to the Lord Jesus Christ and of course to the world. You are. You say, if it doesn't show, it may not be there. But Christ in us is our identity. You see, the words of Jesus confront our lives with a number of questions. Questions of distinctness, questions of relevance, questions of influence. How are we in our homes? How are we in school? How are we in our jobs? For me, as Vice Chancellor, how are we 
in the ministry, some of us that are ordained, or in whatever position we may be, he confronts us with those. Because salt signifies purity, preservativeness, and flavoring. Just as light signifies visibility, guidance, and warning. But I'm not going to focus on those. I want to say four things concerning identity. The first thing that Jesus is saying to us is that we are a separate people. Separate from the world. In other words, we cannot be like the world. A Christian must be distinct if he or she is to influence the world. The more we are like the world, the less we are able to speak to the world about the gospel. There's nothing we can do with the gospel as long as we are like the world. That's what Jesus is saying. That you'll never have influence in the world trying to be like it. None of us can ever be. Separateness. Of course the world wants us to belong. The world even comes to the church to form us into itself. Actually the most dangerous part of the world is when the world is in the church. Not when it is out there. So it comes into the church to try and form us. So Jesus says you need to be separate from the world. Time would not allow me to say everything I would have wanted to say, but the church in the world in the world is in the world as it should be. The world being in the church is intolerable. It should never be. Separateness. Second thing he says, the Christian by being salt and light, models. As a right, what was the righteousness of God? And I'll be speaking a little bit more of that. The visibility that the light brings of our faith, or even the saltness, is critical to our effectiveness <coughs> that the world may admire us. It's not unusual to hear people in the world actually admire the life that the Christians live. If I came to Christ, I struggled with one thing. I thought to myself that if I come to Christ, I had heard the gospel through the East African revival since my childhood. And now here I was at the university, and I was asking myself, but if I come to Christ, how will I be able to live that life? The problem was not that I did not admire the life of a Christian. The problem was I felt it was too exalted to me because I was looking at it as if I was going to work it out in myself. Oddly, you know, the world looks and sees Christians who are living their faith out, admires it. Yes, the world may react by fighting it. The world may try as much as possible to put out the lights. But the reality is the world actually knows. The church is God's showroom of his glory. Your life individually is a depiction of what Christ wants the Christian to be in the world. 
The third thing that he says here that he's talking to us about is influence. The church changing the world rather than the world changing the world in church. It happens only so often that the church quite often just follows and models itself after the world rather than changing the world. When someone comes to Christ, do they know what they should live? I do remember one time leading a young girl in Chicago to Christ. And then the next thing I heard is she was living with her boyfriend. I said, oh my goodness. Cohabiting. And I realized that here is someone who had come to Christ but had not understood and we had to work through that. Had not quite understood what it means that you as a Christian, you have great influence around. I was the first one to come to the Lord in our family. And at the time, it was 10 of us with our two parents. And when I came to Christ, I shared it with them, of course. And I remember my brother, the one I followed, spoke very strongly against the faith that I had adopted and giving my life to Christ. He said, you call yourself self-righteous. I did not fight that. But it did not take him long. Four years, he noticed what, how the Christians were living. Up to today, I still keep the letter that he wrote. I was there in Australia when he wrote that letter, but I still keep that letter, and I read it at his funeral when he died in 2018. And that, in that letter, he made a statement, and he said, I have seen the love that the Christians have for one another, and that has spoken for me. It was not because of preaching. That's because he had been watching. And he was influenced and he gave his life to Christ. He rose and became Attorney General of Uganda because of the influence of the Christians around. That's what God calls us to. Influence. The church changing the world rather than the other way around. Nothing else can salt but salt. Nothing else. Nothing else can lighten the darkness but light. Nothing else. It is you whose influence the world waits to see. But fourthly, it's compelling. When you talk about salt and light, it's very compelling. Because you know salt, I know some people, because of medical reasons, they are stopped from eating salt, but yes, it, get, it takes getting used to, doesn't it? <laughs> or if you start moving around in the dark, you've got to struggle with your eyes to try and see if you can at least see something. But the moment the light is there, wow! Many years ago, I do have a very small scar just above my eye here. <laughs> and this was at McKinley University where I was working. I think it was around 1980. And at that particular time, power went off everywhere. And so we had this terrible darkness in the middle of the city. And I was walking back to my room. I did not have a flashlight. I did not have anything for me to be able to see. Walking back. And the building in which I lived had a rough, it was a rough cast wall with little stones sticking up. 
and I walked right into it. Bam! <laughs> but the moment life comes, you can't walk into the wall with your eyes open, can you? <laughs> it's compelling. Just tells you. You know, we are here. I can see your faces. I can see whether you're smiling or you're not smiling. Why? Because they do. It's very compelling. So when Christians leave their good works out, it compels the world to glorify the Father. But when a Christian loses identity, he or she is useless. You hear what Jesus says? When salt loses its saltness, it's just for trampling underfoot. Now you don't pick up salt, that has lost its saltness and is being trampled underfoot and use it in the food. You just can't. The salt is gone, it's wasted. It's even unthinkable that salt would lose its saltness, actually. You know that? It's one of the most stable chemical substances. Same thing with the light. How do you talk of light losing its light? That's why he talks of covering it. It's unthinkable. Because after all, you light, and like they used to do in those days, they would put that light somewhere in a corner, and it's over there, and it's lighting up the whole place. When the Christian loses identity, that person is useless. And you know what? Uselessness courts disaster. Let me go to my second and last point. The second and last point that I want to talk about is Christian righteousness is Christ-likeness. You know, one of the things that I struggle with with many people is when they start excusing their mistakes, saying, but I'm imperfect. Now we know that. All of us are imperfect. Excuse you. Right? It's one thing that I don't accept around the universe. I've told them very clearly, if you've made a mistake, don't come to me telling me how imperfect you are. I already know you are imperfect. <laughs> That's not the way to deal with mistakes. That's not the way to deal with the sin. Christ's Christian righteousness is Christ-likeness. Christian righteousness is the Christian's resemblance with his or her father. Right? Our father in heaven. So Jesus talks about the law and the prophets and says, I have come to fulfill them. Talking about his moral purity, his moral otherness. It is his just, his love, his holiness. Well, let's listen a little bit. He says he fulfilled the law and the prophets. In other words, that Jesus himself is God's righteousness. I want to say a couple of things here very quickly. Like Jesus, the Christian must not consort with evil. We cannot afford to tolerate. We cannot afford to accept. We cannot afford to live with evil. Friends, we are Christians not because we do not sin. In fact, the very reason why we came to Christ, if any of us hasn't, but for those of us that have, I came to Christ simply because I could not save myself. That's the only qualification, actually, for salvation. <laughs> this is the only qualification. 
If you think you can save yourself, you don't come to Christ, do you? You only come to Christ because you realize that on your own it's impossible. And I remember you how I struggled at that time as a young man in university. I picked up a habit in secondary school with obscenities, speaking obscenities out of my mouth. I hated the habit. And at one time as university students, all of us were mathematics students. And I remember we resolved one evening. We must not use this language again. And so we went back to our rooms and we went about the rest of the business. It took us 24 hours to realize we are no power to overcome sin. <laughs> Just 24 hours. Because when we met again, because it was at supper when we made the resolution, the following supper, when we met, nobody even remembered we had made a resolution. <laughs> <laughs> That's how sin is. You can never defeat it on your own. And that's why we are told that Christian must not consult with evil. Never. God's righteousness means that we need to see sin as he sees it. What does he say in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13? He says his eyes are too pure to look at evil. Too pure. He does not deal with the sin the way we do, where we try to explain why we are sinning. You know, that's very common even in the church. Churches have lost their way simply because they are trying to explain why they are not, they are doing what they are doing. And yet what God requires is to say no to sin. He has provided only one way out of a sinful lifestyle, and that's repentance. The Christian is invited to a counterculture, a life that is different. That's why sin was judged on the cross. We had what Paul was saying, talking about Christ crucified. That crucifixion was a crucifixion that sets us free from sin and leads us into the path of righteousness. God demands repentance, not explanation, not analysis, not excuse. That's not what he's asking for. If he, does, if he, he sent his son to save, and if he sent his son to save, all he wants is that we may repent. Such a priceless thing it is. And then find the salvation that he gives. But also, need to bear in mind that Christian must be careful not to live fashionably. Mm -hmm. Not to live the way the world lives. There is no new morality. There is no new ethics in That's God's right. way. Mm -hmm. That's right. Wrong never becomes right. Evil never becomes righteous. Right. Amen. When God says it is sin, it is sin. And that's what he's talking about, that the law and the prophets must be fulfilled. That's what Jesus came to fulfill. He did not come to amend. This morning, actually, my wife and I, in our devotion, were reading about the woman that was brought to Jesus, caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And it was very interesting, as I was thinking about it, 
that these are people who thought they were fulfilling the law and Jesus showed them that actually the law was intended for the salvation of mankind. It was very different. So the Christian, truth cannot be relative. What is wrong cannot be right because God does not change. Whatever God's word calls wrong cannot become right again. The murder of the unborn will never be right. Sex outside marriage will never be right. Telling lies like I was doing before I came to Christ and I just told lies and if you challenged my lie, I would swear to God that will never be right. But it's because the love of God has come. Whether we are talking about practicing homosexuality, it will never be right. It does not matter what human beings do. God has said wrong is wrong. And what he came to do was to save, not to throw us out. What a wonderful God we have. He's one who has come to love us. Someone said, don't feel bad when people only remember you when they need you. Feel privileged. That you are like a candle that comes to their mind when there is darkness. You come to the mind of the world when there is darkness. Can they turn to you and say, what should we do in this situation? Your identity has implications. Let us pray.